0: Alright, good morning. How's it going? My name is Ryan and I still work here, so it's good to see y'all. <laughs> uh, as Jenny mentioned, I've been on uh, sabbatical since like the middle of June and uh, I missed y'all and I'm glad to be back and excited for what God is going to continue to do in the life of our church. Um, thank you for allowing me the opportunity to step away and um, rest and reflect and kind of recharge It was great. I spent time with my family. We traveled. I read a lot. Um, I took up painting. That's right. I Bob Rossed it. Um, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. I just wanted to use Bob Ross as a verb. Um, (laughs) But it was great. Uh, And then to kind of cap it all off, um, had a chance to go to Honduras for a week with a team from our church uh, to serve with Hope for Honduras, a ministry partner that we've been involved with for three years, and it's incredible to see the work that's being done there, um, just lives being changed, and so that was very meaningful, um, and that was a week before last, and we'll we'll find a time uh, sometime before too long to talk about that trip and and share some stories and uh, other stories of what God's doing around the globe uh, through our partnerships. Um, I want to, before I get into the message, just want to say right now um, a big thank you to our staff. Uh, and our elders who um, just did an amazing job leading. They always do, but uh, in my absence, they had to pick up slack in a variety of ways, and um, I just really appreciate that. And so thank you to everybody who served and um, and who led so well this summer. Um, I also want to say, before I get into my message, on a personal note, I can't resist. Uh, my grandpa is visiting today. This is him in the front middle. He's visiting from California, and... Um, I love my grandpa, and I'm always excited when he's here. He is 92 years old today. Today is his birthday. so yep. So uh, great um, inspiration to me and our family. He was a pastor and uh, army chaplain, Lieutenant colonel, right? So y'all can salute him on the way out. Um, and uh, anyway, wonderful. Father to my dad and grandfather to me, and now great grandfather to my kids. So, uh, he lives in Monterey, California, and so when he comes out here, it's always uh, a real treat. So glad he's here. God speaks to us in many different ways. Um, certainly, when you read the scriptures, He speaks to us. Uh, the Bible is His word; they are His words. And when we read scripture, the Holy Spirit speaks to us as if these words are written specifically for us. Because really they are. I mean, God wrote these words for us in our lives. And so we we sense God's voice and his leading through reading scripture. When we pray in our lives over time, we sense God's leading in our lives. Sometimes it's very obvious what he's leading us to do. Sometimes it's a little trickle of his voice over time. We begin to sense him leading us in a certain way. You may have experienced this in your prayer life or reading the Bible or singing a worship song or serving. You may have sensed the Spirit kind of impressing something on you, on your heart, in your life. Um, He just speaks to us in a variety of ways. I have experienced at a few key moments in my life, I've experienced the Holy Spirit's voice as an interruption. Like I am doing something unrelated to God, my spiritual life, I'm not even thinking about spiritual things, and all of a sudden, it's like this idea pops in my head, or a, a passage from the Bible, and it's just clear God is sort of interrupting what I'm doing to make sure I take notice of something. Uh, this happened in a big way back in, gosh, this would have been 2010. Um, I was, as some of you know my my background, I was four years into graduate school, I was singularly focused on becoming a professor, becoming an academic, I was doing a PhD in biblical studies, I was one year from graduating, and then the Lord began to lead me to consider becoming a pastor, which uh, was an interruption, that was a surprise, because really up to that point, I had taken approximately zero classes on being a pastor, they were all classes on just sort of biblical studies, and... um, and that, that was a big deal. That really felt like an interruption in my life and Ashley's life. We had to really think about this and pray about it. Um, but thankfully, the Lord enabled us to hear and to follow, and, and he's just really worked through that. Uh, but that was definitely an interruption. A couple months ago, I had a smaller-scale interruption, but I, I felt it was an interruption nonetheless. I was, um, this is actually right before my sabbatical. It was late at night. I was reading, and I was reading this great book. One of my favorite authors is Eric Larson. He's a he's a journalist and historian, and um, he wrote this book called In the Garden of the Beasts, and it's about the American ambassador to Germany in the 1930s, before World War II, but when Hitler and Nazis were coming to power. There was an American ambassador in Berlin And he had a family So what was that person's life like? That's what this book is about So it's fascinating I'm reading it My mind is in 1930s Berlin I'm not thinking about my spiritual world at all And I'm just reading And all of a sudden this phrase I just felt like it was beamed into my mind And the phrase is Life that is truly life And that is a biblical phrase That's a phrase in the New Testament and I knew it was in the New Testament, I knew it was Paul, I couldn't remember which letter, so I, I put my book down, I got my Bible, and I, I found it in First Timothy 6. And I really felt that the Holy Spirit led me to that passage. And I've been um, reflecting on it over the last couple of months, and I really feel like God has shown me some things for my spiritual life that I believe He also wants to show you. So I just want to turn there. And and dive in with you and show you some of the things that God has led me through, and I think you'll be encouraged by it. So let's open up to 1 Timothy 6. If you um, are unfamiliar with the layout of Scripture, 1 Timothy is in the New Testament, um, right after 2 Thessalonians. And um, I would encourage you, uh, we have note cards and pens and highlighters on the table. We like to kind of dive into Scripture here together, take notes, highlight uh, so i want to I want to go with uh, you through this passage. Um, we do have Bibles on the tables as well. If you would like to go through a hard copy, you can take that. In fact, you can take that home we 'd love for you to keep that Bible if you don 't actually have one. Um, but we will have the scripture up on the screens as well. So first Timothy six, um, just a quick background on First Timothy. Um, this is a letter, an ancient letter, a real letter that was actually written and sent. In the first century, it was written by the apostle Paul to his protege and partner in ministry, Timothy. And so, First Timothy is kind of a um, sort of a leadership discussion that's happening. Paul is is mentoring this young leader as that young leader shepherds these first-century congregations. And uh, so, I want to read uh, a passage with you. I'm just going to read it all the way through once, because as is the case with many of Paul's letters. He makes an argument. There's kind of a cumulative force to everything he says. So reading it in chunks can help grasp what he's saying. So I want to read it through once, and I'm going to cue you in a couple of places to read something aloud with me. And then we will um, come back and kind of pull out what this means for our lives. So 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 2, kind of halfway through verse 2, actually. Paul wrote this. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth And who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Say that phrase with me. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, remember he's talking to Timothy, you, man of God, flee from all this. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Say that with me. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command, the command to fight the good fight of the faith. Keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be the honor and might forever. Amen they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Say that with me. Take hold of the life that is truly life. That's that phrase I felt the Spirit drawing me to life that is truly life. So, what is Timothy getting at, here, or Paul getting at here as he wrote to Timothy? Um, well, he starts off at the beginning in verse 2. He said, these are the things you ought to teach and insist on. And he says that because he's he's kind of pivoting to finish the letter. He's This is the, like the end of the letter. He's kind of wrapping up. I've been talking about a bunch of things. These are the things I want you to insist on. Um, and, you know, he's talking in the letter about all kinds of things that were trouble in the early church. False teaching, members who seem to enjoy controversy, people wrongly handling their wealth. There's all this friction in the church. Paul's trying to help Timothy lead well in that environment. And then he comes to verse 6 and he says this statement that I had you say aloud, godliness with contentment is great gain. If you're taking notes, I would highlight that phrase. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So Paul here He's lifting up for Timothy that contentment is something to desire. That's something we should want. And if you compare that with godliness, if you compare the two together, godliness and contentment, it's a huge win. It is great gain, he says. And he then begins to unfold in what we just read, the obstacles to that the reasons why we don't experience that great gain of godliness and contentment. And it sounds like when you read it, he's talking about money, right? Just having money, being rich, that's a barrier to this. But he's actually not talking about money. He's speaking more deeply to the heart. He's talking about the desire for money, possessions and the security we think they provide. Because look at the actual words he used in verses 9 to 10 when he was talking about money and wealth. Want, those who want it, those who desire it, those who love it, those who are eager for it. It's all about the heart. If you want this stuff, it's going to prevent you from experiencing this contentment and this godliness together that we are meant to have. And so Paul is saying, look, godliness, what we are called to, Christ-likeness, and a pursuit of money in in an eager way don't mix spiritually. They're like oil and water. They don't go together. The pursuit of money and possessions and the desire for them to have them be our source of security is out of step with a trust in God and godliness. And if you give your heart's to your possessions, it's going to result in what Paul says in verse 10, this very evocative statement. He says, you're going to pierce yourself with many griefs. You could translate from the Greek uh, griefs, you could translate it sorrows. He's saying, if you chase after money and possessions and the security you think it will give you, you will be sorrowful. You will pierce yourself over and over. That's the picture he's painting, because you're trying to find life and hope and purpose in things they cannot and will not deliver. And so contentment we're seeing is not just about like financial contentment. Like just be content with the money you have. That's the top layer of what Paul's saying. The deeper thing he's saying is, is that it's a soul-level contentment. It's a heart-level trust, a heart-level rest in Jesus. Believing he loves you, believing he's with you, believing that he has what's best for you in mind. That's the contentment Paul's talking about. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Um, So Paul's talking about, you know, being content, godliness, and, and how the desire for wealth and riches and money prevents that godliness. Now in verse 11, he switches and tells you how to do this. So Don't pursue wealth as a means of security, but what should you do? Verse 11, he said to Timothy, but you, man of God, flee from all this. Run from it. Flee from it. Flee from putting your trust in things besides God. And it's an interesting word he chose, flee. Because that means it implies you're being pursued. The the temptation to desire money and material things and security instead of God, that temptation is chasing you. It's pursuing you at any given moment. It's behind you. It's not passively lurking somewhere. It's coming after you. You've got to flee from it. So how do you do that? He tells us right there in verse 11, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance. You could translate that steadfastness in faith, gentleness. So Paul's saying the way to flee from this stuff that will derail your life of faith is to chase something else. Chase, pursue Christ's likeness And then he says it this way, verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Highlight that. I had you say that out loud with me when we read it. Fight the good fight of the faith. That word fight there uh, isn't like a uh, you know, like a combat word in the original Greek language. It's, it has to do with um, struggling, grappling, kind of. Uh, you, could tra- you could truly translate that verse, struggle the good struggle of faith. <laughs> struggle the good struggle. You know what that tells us? If your life of faith, if following Christ sometimes feels like a struggle, you might be doing it right. You might be doing it right. Struggle the good struggle, he says. And then he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you've been called. Take hold of it. The Greek word there that we translate is take hold of. It's a word that is sometimes used uh, for arresting somebody or trapping something. But my favorite example of how this word is used in the New Testament, remember when Jesus walked on water and Peter says, can I come out? And he says, yeah, come out. Peter's walking on water. And then he begins to sink. And Jesus reaches down and takes hold of Peter's hand. It's that same word, take hold of. It's a grasp. And Paul's saying, grasp, reach out and grasp, take hold of the eternal life that's been offered to you. And remember, he's talking to Timothy, who's a Christian. (laughs) So that means that Timothy, a leader in the church, may not be fully taking hold of the life that Jesus paid so much for him to have. In verse 17, Paul says, Tell those who are rich to put their hope in God. Money, the desire for it, will stand in your way of trusting God. Be careful, Paul's saying. But the broader point he's making is that whatever you're trusting in instead of God, money. Your reputation, your popularity, your job title, your social media persona, your neighborhood you live in, the car you drive, whatever it is you are giving your trust to, instead of God, flee from it. Flee from trusting in them. And if you do, Paul tells us, you can, in verse 19, take hold of the life that's truly life. Highlight that if you're taking notes. Take hold of the life. It's that same word again, grasping. Grasp hold of. The life that is truly life. And it's a really powerful phrase Paul used there. You know why? Take hold of the life that's truly life. You know what that means? It means that there is a life that isn't truly life. There are versions of life that are not the true life that Jesus wants us to live and experience. And they may even be lives that are sort of superficially Christian or moral or polite or whatever you want to say, we can live lives like that that completely miss how much God loves us, how he views us, and the fullness of what he wants for us. So uh, there's a lot going on in that passage. I-, I want to focus in now on what I felt the Holy Spirit was drawing my attention to as I went, went through this um, Because I think there's an idea here in this passage that we wrestle with. And I don't think we realize we're wrestling with it a lot. And um, it's two ideas that seem contradictory. And it's this, these two ideas of resting versus striving. Resting versus striving when it comes to our spiritual life. What's the relationship between the two of them? Because we saw both of them in this passage. We see both ideas in what Paul wrote to Timothy. Contentment with godliness is great gain. Contentment, rest. Fight the good fight of the faith. Struggle the good struggle. Take hold of the life that's eternal life. One of them seems kind of passive. Contentment, and the others seem pretty active. So how do we work this out? When you zoom out and look at the rest of Scripture, you see this all over the place. Resting and striving. Going hand in hand. Some of the most famous verses in the Bible relate to resting. For example, Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I'm God. Rest, Rest in the knowledge that I'm God. Jesus famously said in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, another famous passage. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. That, those are verses about trusting and resting in who God is. So you have those. You also have the statements on striving, right? Luke 9, 23, Jesus said this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. How about this one? Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. I love this passage. It says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. That is a passage about striving and running the race and endurance and perseverance, faithfulness. So which is it? Our lives of faith. Is it resting or is it striving It's both The truth is it's both As contradictory as those ideas seem They are not in God's mind And I believe that is part of How we take hold of the life that's truly life Is we accept the fact that that life is both It is resting and it is also striving You can strive in a way that doesn't undermine the rest That you feel in Christ And you can rest in a way that doesn't let you off the hook from running the race with perseverance and fighting the good fight. Now, in my life, I am coming off of a multi-year season of kind of striving. I didn't realize that when I was in the midst of it in a lot of ways. But recently, um, by God's grace, I, I, I realized that, that um, you know, I wasn't trying to earn my salvation. I, you know, I believe that God loved me. There wasn't any of that happening. But I just, you know, working hard and striving was just central to the ex- my experience of my relationship with God. And um, God helped me to see through this passage that my time away this summer needed to be not just a rest, but a reset in this area. And I think some of you might be in that place, too of needing a little bit of a reset. And God interrupted me on this point. I need to pull back some from the striving. And I need to relearn and learn anew how to rest in Christ, that deeper rest. Some of you are in that same place. For some of you, your whole conception of the life of faith is about striving, working hard, grand gestures, taking risks, proving your worthiness to God, all striving, no rest. You have got to learn how to rest in Christ and trust in his love for you, as I am seeking to learn. Let's not forget, we are invited to regard God as our Father, and not in some theoretical, distant way, but as an intimate, close, loving Father. Abba is the word in the New Testament, that we are invited to use and to think of God with. Abba being the ancient Aramaic first century Palestinian version of Dada. That's what Abba is. It's a little toddler fumbling with the words to say dad. We are invited to interact with God in that way. I read a book on my sabbatical by Brennan Manning. It's called um, The Furious Longing of God, and it's just an amazing book. And uh, he has a chapter where he talks about this, resting in God's love for us and Abba and all that. And I want to read to you just one paragraph because I just think it beautifully describes the rest, the security, the closeness that we're invited to enjoy uh, with God. So he wrote this. We may address the infinite Transcendent Almighty God with the intimacy, familiarity, and unshaken trust that a 16 month old baby has sitting on his father's lap or his mother's. Dada. Is your own personal prayer life characterized by the simplicity, childlike candor, boundless trust, and easy familiarity of a little one crawling up on daddy's lap? And assured knowing that daddy doesn't care if the child falls asleep, starts playing with toys, or even starts chatting with little friends because the daddy knows the child was, has essentially chosen to be with him for that moment. Some of us need to grow in our ability to rest in Christ in that way and think of God in that way. He just loves us. He just wants us to be with him. And that doesn't change. Some of you, though, it's the other way around. You, you, you know, you don't struggle with the striving as much. You believe that God loves you. This Abba thing, you get it. You trust in that. You rest in that. You, you understand your value in God's eyes. You've got that all, but you're not really pressing forward. You're not really struggling the good struggle. You're unwilling to upset your life. It's all rest and no striving. And if that's you, I believe God has more for you. We've got to learn to rest in Christ and his love while also being willing to take up our cross daily, as Jesus said. That means every single day might look different, but every single day we're making ourselves available to what God has for us, and that may make us uncomfortable (laughs) by what he has for us. We can rest and take up our cross at the same time. And I believe doing that is part of what it means to take hold of the life that's truly life. So let me ask a couple of questions. Does God have the permission to interrupt you? Have you given God that right in your life to interrupt you? I'll, let me say it a couple of different ways. Would you allow Him to interrupt a quiet life and call you to something more dramatic? Or would you allow him to interrupt your dramatic life and quiet you down? Does God have the permission to interrupt you? If you had a knee-jerk internal reaction when I said those questions, I'm like, no. You might not have given God permission to interrupt your life. I think it's important to remember, too, that all seasons of our life are not the same. I think, I I know I have, I think sometimes we can get into this mode of thinking that like we've got God sort of figured out. He acts this way, I'm this way, he acts with me in my life this way all the time, and I'm just going to sort of ride that out till the end. That's not true. God might call you to something very different and very dramatic eight years from now. Would you be open to that if he did? He might want to change lives through you. You just don't know what he's going to do. One of my heroes, uh, I I thought of her as I was going through this message. Uh, One of my heroes is Corey Ten Boom. I'm sure some of you have heard of her. Um, When she was 50 years old, she lived 50 years of a basically quiet, obscure, faithful life as a Christian. 50 years. And then when she's 50, the German army rolls in and takes over the Netherlands where she lives And the Gestapo starts rounding up Jews to send to concentration camps. And Corrie Ten Boom, this very meek, faithful, quiet person, is now in the business of hiding Jews in her house. She ends up getting sent to a concentration camp with her family over the whole business. Some of her family dies. She makes it out alive, writes a best-selling book, The Hiding Place, and becomes an internationally known speaker and goes around the world talking about forgiveness. Forgiving the Nazis for what they did. Which, by the way, if you haven't read The Hiding Place, put that at the top of your list. She lived a quiet, faithful life for 50 years. And then God called on her and said, I've got something for you. She gave God interruption permission in her life. Or you might be striving for big things now, you want to make a big splash, you you know, you want to uh, do great things for God, and that's wonderful, but he may call you to a decade of quiet faithfulness. Would you accept it if he did? I wish I had more time to talk about the unsung power of quiet faithfulness. It's through quiet faithfulness that prisoners are visited. That illiteracy is addressed. Diseases are eradicated. The sick and lonely elderly are visited. The hungry are fed every day, like they are in Honduras. I just saw it. Kids are raised. Kids are discipled. The Bible's in our hands. You want to talk about quiet faithfulness? How about the thousands and thousands of monks and nuns and scholars you've never heard of who toiled in candlelight and copied letter by letter the scriptures for centuries so that we can have it? Quiet faithfulness. What if God called you to that? How would you respond? Have you given God permission to interrupt you? He has a habit of doing this, by the way. You go through the Bible and you you key into this idea of God interrupting people. It's everywhere. Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Hannah, David, Ruth, Daniel, Esther, Mary, Joseph, the 12 disciples, Priscilla, Paul. You can just keep listing. Speaking of Paul, I think he gives us a key to this understanding of striving and rest in another one of his letters and i want to wrap up with this it's in philippians just a few verses i love this passage cuz this is paul reflecting on his own spiritual journey often in his letters he's sort of teaching others here he is talking about himself look what he said this is in philippians 3 starting in verse 10 paul said this i want to know christ yes know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but, and then look at this, this verse here, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. He said, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That sounds a lot to me like Jesus reaching down and pulling Peter out of the water. Christ already reached out. Taking hold of the life that's truly life is resting in the knowledge that Jesus has already reached out and taken hold of us. And so when we reach out to take hold of the life that's truly life, we're, we're grasping a hand that was already outstretched. The life that is truly life is not an idea, it's not a plan, it's not an abstraction. The life that is truly life is a person, and he's Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The life that is truly life is Jesus. His hand is outstretched, and when we reach out and grasp, when we strive, he is there. He has already reached out to us. We're not grasping thin air. And that, I think, is a picture of the resting and striving. We can rest in the knowledge that Jesus is there and he's already reached out and he's not going to let us slip. But we've got to reach out and grasp that hand. I want to leave you with um, kind of a sentence that I put together that's just for you to reflect on. And so I want to take a couple minutes now and um, it's just going to be quiet and... Uh, Caleb's going to play a little bit of music. Um, I just want you to think about this sentence. And uh, pr- you can pray about it. You can take some notes. But just kind of look inward and just ask the Lord to speak to you. So this is kind of a summary of some of what we've been talking about today. Here it is. I have nothing to prove to a God who already loves me perfectly. And there should be nothing I'm unwilling to give up for a God who already gave everything for me. I have nothing to prove to a God who already loves me perfectly. And there should be nothing I'm unwilling to give up for a God who already gave everything for me.